Hi, Jeff. How are you doing? Good, Alex. How about you? Really excellent. And I'll tell you why I'm so excellent. Because it's snowing in Victoria today. Does that make you feel excellent? <laughs> totally does. Because, <laughs> I mean, it's such it's an annual, if we're lucky, it's an annual occurrence. And I, I, I love it, especially when it's kind of close. Like, it's the first day of holidays. And it's like, wow, right on, there's snow. <laughs> it's great. It is nice. It kind of marks the marks some change of some kind. It's funny. I was thinking when I was walking down the sidewalk here downtown, and it was raining, and and I was like, the rain, and it turned to snow. And I was like, oh, snow. It's like I know. It's exactly the same thing. It's just like frozen water falling on you, and it's like, oh, now it's totally fine. Now it's totally fine, and there's those big fat flakes, which I mean, we get a lot of those when it does snow on the coast. Versus, you know, sometimes in Calgary, you get that sideways nails. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know this one doesn't hurt at all. And there's people with umbrellas, of course, because it's Victoria. So I, yeah. I think that's quite funny. Yes, all traffic will stop within the next half hour. We can guarantee that. Oh, yes. And everyone's going to, and all the snow tires will be gone off the shelves today. And it'll be great. <laughs> anyway, thank you, everybody who's joining us for um, today's episode of School of Thought, Victoria. I am Alex Van Tal, journalist, teacher, parent of a learner at Jeff's School. And I'm sitting with Jeff Hopkins principal educator at the Pacific School of Innovation and Inquiry. Um, it's December 21st, Jeff. Do you know what's significant about this day? Well, uh, let's see, the snow, but uh, the solstice, perhaps? Yeah, it is solstice. Um, yeah. It is. And so that reminds me, I should do something to honor solstice. But there's an exciting thing happening with Saturn and oh, yeah. Jupiter. Yeah. yeah. Twitter was on fire last night with it. It's, it's when... My limited understanding is that the two planets, you know, their orbits cross once every 20 years. Mm -hmm. So that's big in and of itself. Um, that's called the Grand Conjunction. So astrologers and astronomers are all watching this. Um, but the, the deeper, more exciting piece is that this is the first time in 200 years that they've crossed together in a different sign than what they've been in. So astrologers are super excited about this because they've been crossing each other for the last 200 years in Capricorn. Now they're going to be crossing each other in Aquarius. So we've actually arrived at the age of Aquarius and we're shifting out of um, old paradigms that are stuck and rigid. That's sort of Capricorn energy into new paradigms that are inspirational um, community focused and what's the other I word intellectual um, there's another I word in there so for me hugely exciting day uh, and the solstice yeah that's all news to me I don't know anything about astrology at all I just like I'm no. listening and going wow I didn't know I don't know what those things mean that's really cool except for the planet part and then you lost me <laughs> <laughs> I never know I'm not an astrology person and I'm not really either I mean it it's fun sometimes Oh yeah, it's lots of fun. Yeah, like the the piece about the 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 shifting of one one viewpoint into another. That's what I'm I'm going to take that seriously. I'm going to make that real in my mind because I'm so ready. We're all so ready to close. You know, 2020 was like this bizarre finale, <laughs> right? Yeah, to, to whatever has been going on, and now it's like okay, things have to be different <laughs> going forward, including education. Yes, yes, absolutely. Exactly. The pull of two giant planets in a row are pulling in one direction. Um, maybe that'll make a difference. It'd be really nice. Yeah. yeah. Go Jupiter, go Saturn. <laughs> <laughs> so today, um, this is an exciting day. This is a, a day that I've been waiting for for a couple of weeks since I looked ahead in our topic list. Um, today, we're going to talk about self-regulation um, in the classroom context or a, in the school context. So let me just lay down the conviction that you wrote out several months ago when we started the podcast, and then we're going to unpack it. So what you wrote is a school can be designed to make self-regulation easier. How is that? Well, um, <laughs> how long is our podcast today? <laughs> <laughs> it will go longer. <laughs> it might, yeah. Um, there's a bunch of things that you can do um, with a school that this is where it really takes um, thinking beyond what you maybe know school to be 
in order to make some changes uh, physically. So some of it's about the actual physical space environment, um, right down to the furniture um, and where it is, uh, all the way to sort of how how you interact with people, the ability you give people to differentiate what their their experience of the day at school is, um, and even even beginning to understand why they would want their experience at school to be different, depending on how they're feeling or what's going on for them in a variety of domains. So it's pretty big. It's actually one of the biggest things there is. Yeah, and I think it it is not well understood um, in education, in the field of education. Um, you know, when I was teaching, I, I imagine I had come across some of this information, but not presented in the same uh, organized way that you shared with me uh, as we were doing our prep for the podcast. So I just want to, um, I want to mention the, the researcher who you, yeah. Yeah, you, you threw down a link to Stuart Shanker's um, self-reg domains. Now tell me a bit about how you came to, like how did, you, how did you stumble on all this gold? Was it from your years as a counselor? Like where did this come from? Actually, BC as a province, we, we sort of stumbled on Stuart Shanker together. Um, there was a, a person in a position of leadership in the Ministry of Education and they they combined with the Superintendents Association, um, found Stuart, uh, I think Stuart might have found BC actually, he was doing a lot of work in Ontario and starting to get some popularity there, um, published a couple of interesting books, uh, one of them with a fellow named, uh, uh, I can't his first name, Greenspan, I think it might be Alan Green, no, not Alan Greenspan, that's a bank person, um, uh, Stanley Greenspan, and it's, uh, it's um, called From Neurons to Neighborhoods, and it was sort of about neurobiology and how it affects the way people interact with one another. And so they they published and then uh, Stuart Shanker began to speak with schools to say, there are some things you could do that could really help children as opposed to just saying you're bad and hanging a sign on them and sending them down to the office. And also parents just going, you know, breaking down with things like trying to put their children to bed at night and um, having, you know, arguments with their kids in the car and ending in tears and all these things. And he just said, there's, there's a real solution to all of this and it's understanding self-regulation. So he came out to BC and uh, presented at a couple of superintendents conferences that uh, were open to educators around the province. Uh, then some parent conferences. Then I think he actually became a bit of a victim of his own success and kind of uh, got pulled too many in too many directions, retreated a little bit. And um, you know he's got a family of his own. And uh, so he's kind of been, you know, hanging out in Ontario more, more than, uh, more than traveling, but I managed to have a, forge a pretty good connection with him. And I've talked to him about, you know, how he does his research and, um, even, you know, talked about doing some research with him, having him as sort of an advisor. So I've, I've managed to kind of get close enough to get a pretty good glimpse, <laughs> which is nice. Now he's at York university, which is yeah. what he is York in. In Toronto. Okay. In Toronto. Um, I'm not an Easterner, so that's a that's <laughs> I'm showing my my lack of uh, geographic knowledge for our universities. So now is he a neuropsychologist? What's his background? His background is amazing. So if, if you look at him, he's a, a philosopher and a mathematician, and uh, most recently a neuroscientist. So he's got a bunch of different masters and PhDs and various things. He's a Wittgensteinian philosopher, and then. Uh, uh, and now, now he's a neuroscientist. So he runs a lab uh, in York University, the Merit M E H R I T Research Lab. Um, it's got uh, the letters are um, an acronym for a person's name who um, donated a, quite a bit of money to this research. And um, he uh, has been researching the neuroscience end of self-regulation as well as, and then sort of I guess translating that into the practical side, um, especially in the school setting, but beyond that as well. Okay, so I want, I definitely want to dig into to some of his, um, some of his um, material, but do you want to give us, what would you give as, as sort of a basic definition of self-regulation to get us started? I think I, I would start by differentiating it from self-discipline or um, uh, self-control, as some people kind of 
think that's what it means when they see the word and that's totally understandable but it's really about it's not about your um your willpower or your um, ability to control yourself as much as it is um your uh, how much are you energy are you using to um just function and is there anything left to regulate yourself in emotional and social ways um recognizing that those things both of those things take an incredible amount of energy and focus so self-regulation is is sort of a a catch-all for the skills but also some practices and some habits of mind that can allow you to be you know calm and present uh when you're in a social or you know or a learning and social environment so one of the really interesting things <clears throat> when i went into the link that you had dropped into the google doc um that supports this episode i was struck by how um yeah like how i got all the way through my psych degree and all the way through my ed degree without actually having anybody like without learning that that there is it's like there you have a, a container for your energy and you know if there's a certain amount of lighting in the room part of your energy is going to be used to adapt to that lighting. If there's a certain amount of noise in the room, part of your energy is going to be adapting to that noise. And, then, and so as, as you need to, you know, as your environment or as your emotional state, it, you know, sort of takes that energy out of your um, container, you're not left with a lot for self-regulation. I didn't know that. And when I was teaching, I didn't know that either. So I find this really, really valuable material for um, teachers to be to be learning about because yeah like we are all emotional beings um impacted by what's happening in our environment so yeah like this finite um i just wrote this question down is energy finite i mean philosophically no it's not but practically in this case for a learner in a classroom yeah it can it can be i think your your tank can you know your energy tank can get bigger so you can learn to do things to make that energy pool bigger but you're right in any given time like sort of a snapshot in time you got a tank of a certain size and um there's a whole bunch of emotional and biological things that can happen that can take you close to you know using up the contents of the tank yeah and okay so that's cool you're saying that you can learn to increase the size of your tank but also we can we can learn as adults and we can help our children learn how to mitigate those things that are draining energy or we within our classroom environments can mitigate some of those things that are going to be energetic drains for for the children so that they can then focus on the task of learning yes definitely. can i you told me last week a really great example of of how a teacher discovered that there was interference from um from something preventing a child <laughs> i'll remind you <laughs> well this was um i'll just give you the nutshell and you can explain the details but it was a teacher you know there was a child who was acting out acting out right which is always it seems to be the child who's doing the the bad thing um and it took this teacher quite a while, uh, and I think a consult with someone else to figure out that this child was responding to noise in the environment. Yeah, this is actually a Stuart Shanker story. He was the person consulting, and uh, he said that this is how I was sort of introduced to the concept of self-regulation. He was brought into a classroom. I think the age of the child was something like grade four or something like that, and they were just, you know, acting out and just essentially the teacher was just waiting for this child to just go off the rails and then they would get, you know, sent out of the room or someone brought into the room or put in the corner or whatever, you know, whatever they couldn't, you know, they couldn't manage them. And so the con the consultant was brought a behavioral consultant and they, and I, I, I think it was Stuart himself, but he was just saying that he noticed that he spoke with the child and found out that the child could hear a sound. And he couldn't hear it because he's too old. And, the, and as you know, the, your frequency drops after you get a little older, you can't hear all the high frequencies. But this young child could hear this squeaky bearing in a fan that was in the ceiling in the school. And they either uh, fixed it or turned it off or something. And once they did that, they were able to actually, that was one thing off the pile of things that were using up energy. There were other things for sure. But 
um, for this child, that was a big one. And it kind of brought them down under that threshold of being flooded with tasks that they couldn't possibly cope with. And they were able to um, cope with being there and everything got better right away. So for children who are um, tricky to, to school, you know, like tricky to get compliance from or tricky to work with, are you thinking that self-reg um, barriers are often the culprit? I think so. And when you try it out, um, I know it's not completely scientific, but when you sort of go with that working theory in your head and you start to think of ways that you could reduce inputs or whatever it might be, or allow someone to change things up a bit, because um, it's different for different people, um, give them opportunities to make changes and reduce the number of things that we sort of force on people that require that energy, you can see a change it, immediately, like instantly for, for really everyone, but especially for the people who often, you know, struggle in school environments. So let me, I, I've got a list here. I print, I'm so excited. I printed off these um, example stressors and they're, oh, this yeah. is on the, will you throw the link out onto the video yeah, when, yeah. So that people can just go to self-reg dash, or sorry, self-reg.ca. And then there's a longer bit to the URL. They'll go right to these lists. There's one, two, three, four. So there's um, stressors in the biological domain, stressors in the emotional, cognitive, and social and pro-social domains. So I'll just read a few things and the list is alphabetical. This is, these are stressors in the biological domain. So anybody who is a teacher or a parent who is listening, um, here are some things that will impinge on that energy. Um, bright lights, busy traffic, caffeine, car or truck fumes, chapped lips, uh, chronic pain, um, digestive disturbances, eating sounds, uh, eating sugar or candy, we know that one for sure, uh, hearing difficulty, hormonal changes, humming of power lines, um, insufficient solitude and quiet. Uh, I actually went through these lists, Jeff, you'll laugh. And I put a little arrow next to the things that affect my energy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think you almost naturally find yourself doing that when you think about, oh, this is, how does this apply to me? <laughs> kind of like when you read any health stuff on the internet, but this one totally. easily applies to everybody. Yeah. And so this, this kind of, um, I think familiarizing ourselves with these lists will help teachers be, what is the word, more forgiving of children as they, as they seem like they're acting like bad children. Yeah, I think forgiving first and then also it makes you think a little bit differently about what your strategies might be. Um, it's not that someone got up in the morning and said, okay, what are the rotten things I'm going to do to my teacher today at school? Um, they got up with every intention of trying to do school, maybe even worried to death, knowing that things tend to go off the rails. And then uh, if it's someone where it's sort of chronic and then they get to school, they get flooded, they can't manage all of those things that happen and it goes off the rails. So your strategy isn't about talking to someone about an act of will it's about helping somebody find solutions so you're on the same side as this person who is you know as a teacher you know maybe making your life kind of miserable but they're it's not about you and there's some really good work that that teachers or principals or who, who or parents can do with children to help them get to know themselves better as they explore to identify these things because like quite honestly when i look at the emotional um list emotional stressors there are probably a, a great number of adults who would be hard pressed to actually pinpoint what is the cause of my agitation right a lot of us haven't been taught to name our feelings um other than good great crappy hungry right so like from the emotion domain um some of the some of the energy blockers some of the things that cause dysregulation are disagreements or arguments uh, doubtfulness, embarrassment, uh, guilt, helplessness, intense surprises, right? And I think we can all think back to a time in our own life when, yeah, being kicked out of class was, I mean, I was kicked out of class in grade seven, and that would have definitely taken all my attention for the rest of the day, if oh, not yeah. for the rest of that week, right? Like yeah. I, I would have been shamed and I was being a jerk, I'm sure. And, but, but, you know, you, you hang on to that. And then now Alex has become impenetrable to new learning because she's so focused on 
what happened there. Yeah, yeah, and and there's that's just a great example of so many of the things we do that deal with you know quote unquote behavior. I mean everything is behavior. It's just how people act, but the kind of behavior we don't want, um, the ways we tend to deal with it are often the worst ways <laughs> that we can you deal know, with right? it. If you want to see any change. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I mean, sometimes this podcast is a bit of a confessional for Alex, the recovering teacher, but well, me too. There, and you too. There was a boy in uh, when I was teaching in Calgary, who was I, I had a lot of really good strategies. Um, but I was obviously missing a couple and I did not know about this in his case. And so you know, I would have my class and he would be disruptive and I would engage a couple of times, redirect this and that, wouldn't go successfully. And so I would just sort of snap and out, he'd be out in the hallway. And I remember, you know, putting him out there three, four times and feeling disappointed with myself that I couldn't work magic with him. But now I just wish I could go back and be like, you know what? Like, I just, I wasn't seeing you. I wasn't at all taking your position and looking at the things in your world that were making it so hard for you to even care about French that day. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit, Jeff, about what we can do to be better at um, empathizing with our learners. Well, I think it's, it's on a bit of a scale of possibility, depending on how much you can change big things in your, in your school or small things. So you know, we're lucky in this school because we could change everything. We just changed everything. Um, but, you know, in your school, um, thinking about, or in your classroom even, thinking about um, the physical layout of the desks. Um, how close are people to one another? Can they, um, have you got your back to someone? Um, that, for some people, that is a tremendous source of um, stress to have people behind them. And mm -hmm. they might just need to be placed in a different spot in the room. Um, yeah. Uh, sounds are, are a big deal. Um, if you, you know, the old uh, tennis ball on the, on the, under the legs of the chairs thing that you, that some yeah. schools do to so they don't make a squeak sound, buy the tennis balls. It's totally worth it. It's a big, very big deal. Um, if you can have a little space where someone can kind of be outside of the, um, you know, the rows and columns, if you have that kind of a classroom, uh, if they are dysregulated, if they have a, a way and a place to just kind of pull out and um, decompress. Uh, that's you know really really important. And a lot of school, a lot of teachers are doing that now. They've created these little corners in the room where somebody can kind of get out. I I, I want to just butt in with a with an example of one of those. There's yeah. a teacher. I have no idea where I heard this story, but she has an exercise bike somewhere in the side of the room. And so when ch kids are upregulated or just need to burn something on they get on the bike and pedal away and they're listening pedaling. Away they go. Yep. Yeah. that's a, such a good idea um yeah a couple of middle, middle schools in bc now are being designed with exercise bikes like in the hall like right outside the door of the classroom so you just go out and get on the bike and bike for a little while and then you know come back when you feel better um awesome. it's, it's really smart and it, and it works really well so you know for if you and so that's sort of the small end of the scale and if you want to get to the big stuff it's um like we have no bells we don't have a timetable we do have things are scheduled at certain times but um that's just like meetings that you schedule to go to then just when we want to have a group of people together we have to you know pick a time or so that everybody knows it's happening but um it's optional and so if you want to come come and if it's something that you've committed to you're probably going to come um there's no bell ringing there's no um you know if you're working on I don't know, let's say you're editing a film and you're really close to being done and you want to keep going and the thing you had planned to do was supposed to start now, you might say, I don't think I'm going to do that thing I plan to do. I want to keep doing this thing. And mm -hmm. here, that's totally fine. But in another school, the bell might ring or, you know, the 30 people in the room doing that have to get out because that new 30 people are coming in. We don't yeah. do that. Um, also, people might come in and say, today, I really feel like being around others. And then they, or they might come in and say, today, I don't feel like being around others or right now. I don't want to be around people or I'm under uh, stimulated. I need some sound. I'm going to put some headphones on and play some music or I'm over um, stimulated. I need to be, I need to go to the sensory room or to the quiet space. We have differentiated spaces for all these things. We changed our lighting so that um, we have, we're lucky we have good light from the, the outside um, in most parts of the school, but we changed all of our lighting over to to LED spot lighting away from fluorescent tube lighting, um, recognizing you have a little more 
control over what you do with it. It's brightness. Also, it's not flickering, things like that. Um, that makes it crazy. Do you remember flickering fluorescent lights from your school days? Well, I, I didn't know, but I, when I, I thought everybody saw stripes on fluorescent lights and I couldn't figure out why anybody used them because that's what I see all the time. Like, wow. so when I'm in any place that has fluorescent lights, I see stripes. They look like zebras. They're sort of like the stripes are zooming along the tube. And yeah. I just thought everybody just thought that was okay. Um, I didn't realize that that's not something everyone sees. Right. Um, one day I found out when it was really cold in a building, I can't remember it was a gym and the lights had just been turned on. You can see the stripes really clearly. And someone goes, oh, look at that. You can see stripes. I'm like, yeah, they're fluorescent lights. And then I realized that that's unusual. <laughs> so I couldn't stand being in a school when I was a kid because it was, it was like psychological torture. Um, yeah. Like, how could you be in a room with all these stripey things? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally get that. Well, so yeah, you're saying there's a lot of things that, um, that can be done structurally within the school. Um, and talk a little bit more. Yeah, talk a little bit more about the no bells, no schedules, you know, some of the things that Sai has implemented to really um, enable participants and learners to to um, stay in the learning zone that they're in self regulate, you know, just have a harmonious time at school. What else have you done? Well, those, those are big ones. I think part of it is making people aware of how to use that freedom is, is probably the, <laughs> the next biggest part is when you're new to the school, you're like, what the heck, is, what am I supposed to be doing right now? You, so you have to create a, a plan for yourself. We, we have an organizational teacher group that helps you do that planning sort of short term and long term, which makes a difference. But even then it, it takes it really is a, a paradigm shift, a true shift. Um, it, if you've been into a sort of a mainstream school, it's it's just bizarre. It takes like a really six, seven weeks before you start to get your head around it. Um, mm -hmm. It's so different. Um, so helping people understand, you know, you might need to go from the collaborative space to the quiet space, maybe through the day, maybe you just spend a half an hour, an hour there, or the other way around. Um, and people are learned, they learn to experiment with that because we, we kind of, uh, ask them questions about, you know, have you tried this? Have you tried that? A little bit of nudging, a little bit of uh, questioning to, to raise that self-awareness. Um, we have a sensory room that one of our learners um, tried as an experiment about, I guess it's now we're on year four, so about just, just over three years ago. And they, um, they got a little bit of funding uh, to, from health to try um, a sort of a mental health intervention, which is what if we had a room that was a place where you could kind of de-stimulate, de um, we call it the sensory room, low lighting, um, some fidget toys, uh, a weighted blanket, a rocker, um, a zen painting thing, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. A zen stand. You can yeah, one of those. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, oh. anyway, so we, we were doing a letting people decide if they wanted to go in, they would just sign into the room, close the door. You can see on the door that someone's in there. So the door isn't opening every five seconds. Um, and then uh, they, you know, the idea was is you'd be in there sort of 15, 20 minutes, maybe half an hour at the most, um, one person at a time. Um, and then when you, when you come out, you just talk about when you went in, um, how did you feel on a scale of one to 10 when you came out? How did you feel on a scale of one to 10? What did you do when you were in there? And after doing this for about six months, we had a lot of survey information and found that people, you know, went in feeling, you know, like two and came out feeling seven. And wow. they said, I just, I meditated or I just read a book or I just sat there with my eyes closed for 10 minutes or whatever, you know, put the weighted blanket on and, you know, painted or whatever it might be. And we gathered enough information to say, we cannot do without this room. As much as we could use the room for something else, yes. we need this room. <laughs> so, yeah. And I know when you were preparing the school for um, COVID regulations, yeah. I, I remember visiting in the summer and you were you you explained to me at the doorway to the sensory room, you're like, yeah, we had a conversation about whether we could occupy this with so learners could have more space for work. And we decided the value of this room is too important to help to help learners, you know, come back, get their feet back on the ground when they've lost touch. Absolutely. And, and even, you know, we have, we know there are learners in every school, there are learners with, you know, anxiety and other things as well. Um, we have a couple of learners who they come in in the morning and 
the the amount of energy it takes for them to walk through the door of a school because of their yeah. you know, years of anxiety usually about school. Um, school is a trigger or the cause or both. And they, you know, a couple of these people, one of the first things they do usually within the first hour, hour and a half of the day is go into the sensory room. Mm -hmm. um, and they're, they might just be there for, you know, 10 minutes, but mm -hmm. if they don't do that, if they know that's not waiting for them, they don't come to school. Um, they just won't come. And so um, their pattern has been not going to school until they've come here and go, oh, I have all these options available to me and I can make these decisions um, anytime. Like when I'm ready, I can make these decisions. I can leave a group session when I need to. I can come into a group session when I'm ready to. Uh, yeah. I just, just like a normal, polite adult, you say, excuse me, and you go. <laughs> it's not it's not a big deal. Um, but often schools have this, you know, this like sort of thumb down, why are you leaving? You can't just leave. Um, mm -hmm. You know, what if you weren't supervised by someone? You know, but again, our teachers are uh, spread out around the school and some of them are not in a session, a group session. Most of them aren't in a group session at the same time. So there's, you know, ample supervision and people to ask for help um, yeah. without having you penned into a room with them yeah and it and um yeah like the learners have ultimate freedom at sci you know to choose what they need to pursue what they need um and schools are sort of along a bell curve right some are um still fairly dictatorial in terms of you need like to ask my permission before you go to the washroom but in recent years we've seen you know a lot of loosening of the you know do you need to go get a drink please don't disturb us go ahead and get your drink or have your water at your desk you know some schools are even like yeah have a snack at your desk because if i was working at a desk i would have some snacks so it's good to see that there are some you know there's a lot of um educational spaces right now where the adults are trying to make more room for the children to be able to regulate themselves and take care of themselves as the day goes on. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's different from at different age groups too. I, I see elementary level educators mm -hmm. doing a really good job of this and actually having done for the most part for a very long time. I see high schools still probably be on one end of that bell curve, generally speaking, where yeah. they're not doing it as much. And some of it's just um, structural, just um, we got 57 minutes, the bell's gonna ring, you're gonna leave and other groups gonna come in, clean up all your stuff, don't get too comfortable. Um, you know, and if you're on a, this year on the quarter system, if you miss a day, you've missed, you know, twice as much time in your class, if, you know, because of the way some schools are doing the, the uh, handling the pandemic timetabling. Well, and you know, you just said, um, clean up your stuff. And that, that reminded me that, yeah, at the elementary level and certainly at the primary level, children aren't moving from room to room. Mm -hmm. They're in a homeroom, which is their nest. And so they've got their cubby or their their closet or whatever the teacher sets up. There's a reading corner. You know, when I was teaching grade five and six, I had a reading corner. Um, and so kids could go there. And I think when, as we get older, as the children get older, they they go from room to room to room to room all day, which we typically don't do as adults in the workplace. I mean, there's all kinds of exceptions to that, but you know that the you know in the traditional system, children kind of lose touch with having a home base, which itself is can be dysregulating, right? You know, it is, and it really is for most people. If you work in a, in a yeah, office environment, a lot of these open offices where there's no, you don't have a home base. It's really it's podcasting. That's the term for yeah. it in, in tech. It's hot desking. And yeah, all those open office experiments that were so exciting, like open space, um, open concept, not open space, yeah, open concept. Yeah. They, they've been shown to be 15% less effective than having people in their own space. Yeah, unless you build in some some nests and they're so the companies that make these little quiet rooms and they, they've made a fortune off these open <laughs> open concept offices because they know people need the ability to find a way to regulate and you know that you can't always do that so yeah it's it's um a pretty big it's a pretty big deal and again it takes it takes conscious effort and it takes thinking about you know what are all the things that could be you know in the biological domain like how comfortable are the chairs um how is it the right height to go with the desk? Are people sitting down for six hours? Um, you know, do you have a semester with no PE? Um, you know, things like that. Like in our in our school, when you want to go to the gym, you just go to the gym. Um, 
you, you say, oh, I really feel like going to the gym right now. <laughs> so the only the only thing, again, pandemic is that you we have the YMCA that we use for our PE. You have to, um, you know, make a do an appointment on an app. Yeah. But generally speaking, um, you can go. So we have a teacher that will take groups on a regular basis. But if someone really needs to go, and I say, I just need to go swimming. They just go swimming. Um, or I really need to go like ride, go on an elliptical trainer for, you know, 20 minutes to go. So yeah. that helps with regulation too. So one of the things I wanted to um, mention is, um, you know, you talked about the weighted blanket in the sensory room at Sci. Yeah. And a few years ago, weighted blankets were not um, well known, not common. Now you see them, you know, out there. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember having a conversation with my youngest son's grade one teacher who had, uh, she had done her master's in special education. So she was very masterful. She was doing her PhD at the time that she was teaching um, Jonas, but she was a master at helping children self-regulate. And I remember during one of our conversations, she was talking about um, my son, who's a bit of a wiggler. And I am too, it's so funny. I, I wiggle all the time, I'm sure you've noticed. <laughs> But she said, you know, she would give him one of those um, curved spherical um, balls to sit on, you know, to put on his his chair. Um, and she said, you know, for some children, what they really loved, they would go and lie on the sofa and she would come and put a really big bean bag on them, a big, heavy bean bag, mm -hmm. like right on this little person. Yeah. And she said, and I had no idea. I was like, you're kidding. Like, this is so cool. <laughs> but she said, you know, the weight just gives them peace you know mm -hmm. maybe it's like a, a womb like thing i don't know yeah. but now we see them on the like they're on the shelves at at our um super stores now yeah they're everywhere now interestingly this is where self-regulation gets really interesting you combine that with personalization and if you put a weighted blanket on me i start freaking out um huh. i cannot i yeah. could not put one on for more than two minutes or i would start to lose my mind and we have, we have kids who are like, I need to be by sound and a window. I need light coming in. Uh, I need things going on. Um, or I cannot, I can't manage myself. I need, you know, stimulation and other, other learners who are like, put away the blanket on me, you know? And um, for me, that's the wrong kind of stimulation. It actually kind of overstimulates me in yep. kind of a haptic way. And so I can't, I can't do it. Um, yeah. But other people, it's like, just what the doctor ordered. So it's a it's a helping people find their own uh, way to to regulate um, and even to recognize you know in a particular situation there might be a different way that they're regulating based on sort of what's going on um, that that day or at that time. That's true. So it's contextually based sometimes. Very much so, and then and personalized as well. So yeah. So. Um... One of the one of the beautiful advantages to helping children and, and teachers become more conversant about self-regulation is um, that it just gets people on the track a little bit earlier for understanding what helps them work. Mm -hmm. You know, like back to what I was saying a little while ago about people not really being able to always know what emotion they're feeling. That's a cultural thing, right? That's a result of the us having largely gone through an education system that during Gen X's time, that's us, during the boomers time, that's our parents, was largely insensitive to learner needs, right? Yeah, and there's still people, yeah. yeah, there's still people out there who will, who will say, oh my God, enough of the talk about what Jordan needs and what Samara needs, like, let's just actually get the work done. But I think those voices are are tapering now with this new knowledge um, coming out and being talked about that we only benefit as we get older by knowing what helps us, you know, and what what makes us tick. I want to mm -hmm. um, I want to talk. I'll use another personal example um, that I didn't know. I didn't discover this about myself until I had children. And I was learning from a parenting expert. I'm not sure if it was a course or maybe one of the uh, care providers at my son's daycare. But she was um, talking about transitions being a difficult part of, of um, the daily landscape for toddlers. And 
this was the first I'd heard of it, but of course, all the evidence in my world agreed, right? Like transitions when someone's putting on their shoes too slowly, we're maybe a little bit late for something, or I'm worried that we're going to be late. And I just want you to put your jacket on and zip it up and stop pointing at the butterfly on the wall, you know? And so transitions typically are when explosive behavior happens. And it is that way for toddlers, but it's also that way for some adults. And so for me, my sons now know when, when Moth, that's my name, I'm not mom, I'm Moth. <laughs> when Moth is in transition, like just let her transition, right? If we're leaving the house, we're locking the door, we're getting in the car, don't ask a big question or don't, don't even ask anything that requires a lot of focus. But I would not have had that knowledge about my own limitations and needs if I hadn't been taught by a, by a wonderful early childhood education expert, right? Okay. So we need to get this information out there. Absolutely. And it's interesting you mentioned transitions because, again, in a high school, um, PSII is a high school, and I've been a principal of sort of a typical high school, a couple of, a few of them, and they um, usually, you know, the bell rings. And then, you know, when I was the principal of a school nearby here, there were 1,600 people who all go out of one room and into another room in like five minutes. And it's crazy. Like the transition is, it's ridiculous. Like, why would you ever do that? Why would you design a system that has 1500 people suddenly getting up and moving to another place and then settling down again, or hopefully settling down again? So um, hopefully, again, because we don't have a timetable, part, part of the reason why we don't have one is so that people are making transitions in a staggered way. So there might be, you know, mm-hmm. three or four people that are moving from this room to that room, or, you know, turning this on or turning that off, rather than, you know, everybody all of a sudden making a shift, um, recognizing that different people respond differently to the idea of transition and having different speeds at which they can make a transition. And then also recognizing, you know, even just from a neurobiological standpoint, that, that task switching that, that takes so much energy of your executive function. Um, again, if someone's using all their energy to make a transition, like you say, you might not be able to have a conversation while you're making that transition or um, you know, be asked a question or answer that question, um, or, or something else just might be overwhelming to, to you while you're doing it. So we just try to make those transitions very personalized as well, and not simultaneous, so that not everybody's doing it at once. Because why would you do that on purpose <laughs> in a school? Like it's a crazy thing to do. Well, I mean, I mean, even I mean, and I know that this is part of your methodology, right? And we've talked about this lots over the years, but even at just listening to you explain it now, I'm struck by um, the absurdity. It, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen footage of those crosswalks in Tokyo where actually yeah. all the traffic stops and then all the pedestrians go. I mean, you're familiar with Japan, yeah. so of course you know these things. I've been on that crosswalk, the Shibuya crossing. It's fantastic. Fantastic. That's kind of the image I get, you know, when you say the bell rings and then all of a sudden all these bodies are loosed out of rooms. They're in transition. They're going to the next place. And, you know, that when they get to the next place, they are supposed to be ready to ingest information. And that that that's probably accurate for maybe 5% of them. Absolutely. Um, when you talk about having a snack too, um, people sort of enlightened teachers saying it's okay to have a snack. We had a learner a few years ago, he graduated about three years ago, and he used to come in in the morning. Our school starts later too, and this is another part of self-regulation is that we know you're more likely to be able to regulate if you've had enough sleep. Sleep is one of the biological domain things. And we know teenagers are sometimes um, wired in a funny way where they can't just go to sleep right away. They need to, they need to be up a little later um, yeah. to sleep a little longer. So we try to make space for that. We don't start till 9.30 in the morning. Um, even though 9.30 sounds late, everyone adjusts and 9.30 is all of a sudden like, oh my gosh, it's so early. It's, it's 9.30. <laughs> uh, anyway, I said, back in my day, we start anyway, but they, we had this, this one boy used to come in, uh, you know, quarter after nine, uh, kind of get settled, get started on things, have his org meeting, plan out his day. And then he would eat his lunch uh, right around, I don't know, 10, 10, yeah. 15. And a huge lunch, like a thermos and a sandwich and a, you know, it's gone, like the whole lunch. And then later mm-hmm. on, you have like sort of another one, another another lunch of some kind. Um, but for him, um, if you think about the school where you're not allowed to eat, 
and mm -hmm. he would be starving. And then how, what would you expect from that person, you know, around 11 o'clock in the morning, if since 10, they've been really hungry. Yeah. Uh, at, you know, it's just, it's crazy. Not I'd to be mighty grumpy. Oh yeah. He, he'd be grumpy or at least he would shut down or he would not be able to focus or whatever it might be. And we even noticed like before he ate, he would have trouble focusing. He was starting to get kind of antsy and a little bit all over the place. And then he'd eat and he'd be real good for another, you know, couple hours. And then he <laughs> like mule again. Um, he grew like about a foot a year, but um, he, he, he just needed to eat. And, and um, yeah, like that would be a biological thing, wouldn't it? I'm, I'm going to jump into the cognitive domain here. I'm still looking at Shanker's list of um, these are example stressors in the five domains of, of self-reg. And actually, this is not uh, Stuart Shanker's. This is from some of, uh, some of his um, scholars who prepared these lists. Yes. So good, though, like in the cognitive domain. So these are things that add cognitive load, right? Mm -hmm. And take yeah. away from your ability to actually focus. Uh, well, I'll list off the ones that I flagged for myself. Let's just be honest about this. Confusion. <laughs> Um, competing demands of work and school and kids, multitasking, I put an arrow in a circle beside that one, but I think that's for everybody, right? Multitasking, making decisions, um, slow, speedy world. I mean, so many learners will have these as well, right? Some children will feel like, yeah, they don't learn when there's too many interruptions or when there's too much inferring instead of having expectations clearly laid out. Um, overstimulation, prior problems prioritizing tasks. You know, um, it's actually, this is an exercise in self-forgiveness people. So please go and <laughs> download these because um, you will see yourself all over in here. So, so Jeff, when you were designing the school, mm -hmm. you knew some of these things off the dot, right? You knew you did not very want much, very much, yeah. You knew you did not want bells ringing. No. Have you discovered some things as you've gone along the way? I think I think the sensory room was a a, a find. Like I, I had heard about people doing that, but I don't think I realized how powerful it would be and how many people would use it on a regular basis. I kind of saw it as like a almost an emergency situation, but I, I see now it's it can be a part of someone's regular day. Uh, so that was a that was really unusual. Um, the weighted blanket I'll never understand. It was horrible. Um, <laughs> you know, I like the I don't like the heavy ones, but I I'm down with that. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. Um, I think the other part of it maybe was the um, the part of it that involves helping people become aware of what works for them. Because I sort of thought, you know, we'll create all of the different kinds of levels of stimulation and lighting and da 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 da, da and sound, and then people will just find their place. But I think. Um, the coaching part that helps people understand what works for them was something that I, I maybe miss, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't sort of see how important that part was. Um, and so that was easy though, because it was just like, help people do that. Um, but it, it, you know, I, I underestimated how important that was. People don't know themselves very well though, especially teenagers, because sometimes they'll say, it's yeah. kind of cool to say you listen to blaring death metal while you read poetry um, and you're taking in everything in the poetry. It's like, well, no, I bet you're not. Um, you might be, but I doubt it. And so um, to get someone to kind of admit to themselves that they might not be able to listen, listen to blaring death metal while they do that, um, there's nothing wrong with that. But just what, what, is, what are your goals here? Are you accomplishing your goals? Or are you trying to project sort of an image that isn't really working for you? So a lot of the, you know, the facade drops when, when the young learners kind of realize, oh, actually, if I kind of want to get anything done, um, this is how I do it. They just, they learn themselves. And the best part of that is that they're learning, like I said, early, so that as they transition out of the high school environment into university, they can advocate for themselves yes. and or take care of themselves. And they, you know, you just said something about, um, that made me think about people's shame in admitting some of these limitations. That's really pervasive out there, right? There is this um, grind culture. There is this, you know, we uphold the busy schedule. We, we, we love the idea that we can get it all done. And I think as, as people are oriented to the, their, um, their needs 
for self-care and self-regulation as they get older, they're going to be more able to openly discuss them in the workplace, um, not in a whiny way, but in a way of like, yeah, no, I like natural light. I know for sure. I know for sure um, I need to have a couple plants around and I'm not going to show up at uh, 7.45. I'll be here from 10, but I'll work till, you know, 5.30. Yeah, it's sort of like it, almost the, not a whine, but like if you want to get the most out of me as an employee, here's, here's, here's how to do it. Like I, I will be so on if these things are happening. It's going to, you're going to get, you know, it's going to be better. It's funny when you say, you've said forgiveness a couple of times and it made me think about something that might be worth mentioning, which is um, when you understand self-regulation, it's not about um, lowering any expectations of people at all. It's just about recognizing that people need support and that you can do a lot to kind of mitigate things that are adding a load or or recognizing when a load is being added and thinking about what you're doing as a as a teacher or someone else in the school who's making decisions so you're not saying i'm going to demand less of this person you know academically or whatever you don't have to do that so if someone's listening to this going oh yeah this is another you know flaky water everything down kind of thing so no no these are these are adaptations not modifications and you know in edge you speak that means you're you're changing the way you're helping someone demonstrate the learning, but you're not changing the, the level of learning that you'd like to see. Um, yeah. So, you know, what we're finding the opposite, actually, which is we're seeing people go to much greater depth in their learning because they have the, uh, they have all of the tools, the knowledge and the environment in which to self-regulate on a more, you know, kind of regular basis. Um, yeah. So the to do better. That's exactly it. The work that comes out the other end of the pipe is stronger, um, more authentic. There's more engagement with it. Like it's a win all around when we're taking good care of, of ourselves. Yeah, um, I wanted to um, go back to um, that example that you gave from when Stuart Shanker was talking about the, the boy in the classroom with the squeaky um, fan bearing. I mean, imagine that being able to identify that and pull that out of that child's experience. But the, the important thing that um, Shankar in that case gave to the child was that he was seeing that child as a unique individual, um, fully equipped in the same way that we are as adults with emotions, experiences, story, like he, he teaches, you know, and, and uh, promulgates this idea of being able to actually see someone as a being that needs um, different things perhaps than you yourself, but those needs and, and uh, requests are no less important. And I think that's really missing in a lot of schools. I would agree. It's funny um, that when you at the very beginning of this talk and you'd asked about, you know, you know, sort of what a, what a teacher needs to do differently or, or how, you know, how it might change the way you do things. I think the biggest one is that is not so much tools or tricks or tips, but how you see people. And, you know, if you begin to think that way about people, the way you do everything else kind of changes as well. And, and the learner feels it. So, you know, we've talked before about, you know, building trust. And if you're, always doing things to people and you're not considering in any way what that person might actually need. <laughs> um, it's very hard to ask for some other things that require trust because mm -hmm. why would there be any? Um, how, how could you even have trust if you didn't really have any connection with the person or have the person feel that you had any idea who they were? Um, so to me, that's actually the most important. It's funny because this self-regulation stuff has spawned a massive industry of all kinds of things that are especially to do with like um, fidgety type stuff, like a little, um, yep. one of the tricks that I learned very early on when I was learning about this was putting a, a bungee cord around the two front legs on a chair so that uh, just about, you know, maybe this high off the ground so that if you're fidgety, you can put your, your heel on the, on the band and kind of bounce your foot on the, on, with a little bit of resistance. And it, it's really cool. And for me, it's great. And so I actually do that because it stops me from going crazy because I kind of have too many things going on. So um, it's, it's really helpful, but um, 
it's not a it's not a, a thing that now everybody has to have a bungee cord on their chair because somebody would be like right. this stupid bungee cord off my chair is driving me crazy so right. um, it's it's a, a matter of really seeing each person that's mm -hmm. why the personalization is so important it, it underpins everything else it's not oh now here's a new thing i'm going to do to everybody equally at exactly the same time it's um no there isn't one thing that you're probably doing for or to anyone at one time ever yeah well that that's good it's not always one size fits all and it's not always one solution will will fit all either right right on that um theme of of um talking about seeing people for people i i, I want to flag this book um leadership and self-deception it's not shining too much this is by the arbinger institute and um this was brought to my attention a few months ago and you know, I read a lot of leadership stuff, a lot of team building and culture building stuff. This had been off my radar. It's not commonly talked about, but it should be because it's all about, and it's, it is um, told in a narrative. So it's sort of like a story, but it's all about the difference when you make that one tiny shift from looking at people as objects, which most of us are want to do much of the time. But when you shift, and look at people as equal, right? I am human, you are human. Here are my needs, what are your needs? It's a total game changer uh, in the classroom and in real life. Yeah, absolutely, it's so, it's so true. And it's not difficult, um, but it's something that a lot of people haven't done before, <laughs> especially yeah. in these hierarchical organizations where you're slotted into your spot in the, you know, in the pecking order and you feel sometimes even trapped in that by saying my job is to make these people do x or um, whatever it might be and it's like you can just break right out of that that's just totally made up um this garbage it's actually pretty old leftover stuff from an, a bygone era so if what you're trying to do is help people learn you're allowed to see them as people <laughs> and they're allowed to see you as a person and they're allowed to see you as a person yeah, yeah. we still have these hierarchies in high schools so what do you say about that well, this gets into that stuff like, do you let the kids call you by your first name and all that kind of, that is just totally irrelevant. It's like, it's our the biggest red herring. I think mm -hmm. it's about what are you comfortable being called and what makes the most sense? Um, and how do learners want to refer to you? For me, it's different. Like different people call me different things. Mm -hmm. um, we have a teacher here who has a uh, had a first name that was the same as another teacher. So everybody calls him by a weird variation of his last name. Um, and it's like, it's like, what, where did that come from? But it's really just a matter of um, everyone kind of doing what makes the most sense and being true to themselves and their relationship with others. So, so I, I feel like, you know, as a teacher in this system, you need to put your ego away and mm -hmm. you need to um, be a human and be fully present uh, and remember that your job here is to help someone learn. You're here to facilitate learning. That's it. You're not here to put, you know, put your thumb on somebody. You're not here to show them, you know, what, why you're better than them or anything. In fact, it's the opposite. Often it's about tearing that down. So people feel like they can ask you the questions they need to ask you to be a better learner, take the risks they want to take, or, or maybe don't want to take, but should be taking. Uh, in their learning, um, they don't have anything to protect themselves from. You're not a you're not a threat, um, and that's you know that's another not something that most individuals get up in the morning and say I'm going to threaten kids. But um, <laughs> you're you're kind of wearing a badge that is part of the system, and unless you actively remove that badge, you're wearing it whether you like it or not. So it's an it's a an act of you know commission to make yourself a human being as a teacher not uh, not just something that automatically happens you, you can't just say oh i'm the, you know everybody knows that you know you have to actually actively make that happen yeah and i think there is a lot to be borne in mind around that ego piece um and when we're using the word ego we're not using the the word in the way of being conceited or fat-headed we're talking about yeah. the spiritual ego of self right um and and teachers do well, no, actually, it's both egos. Teachers often do rely on that um, thou shalt, right? I'm the one who's in charge here. Don't talk back to me. But what we see 
you know, and I'm just thinking, connecting some dots here on the fly, actually, there's such a lot of difficulty out there with conflict, being able to handle conflict, being able to navigate conflict. So most adults don't like it, avoid it, you know, need lots of tools to, to work their way through it. And I think part of that comes from having gone through a school system where they don't have a voice or when they raise their voice, you know, when they, when they challenge a teacher, they're just shut down. So by the time they get out into the workforce, you know, and parents do this too, it's not just teachers, but, you know, this idea that kids have fewer rights or that they're less of a person, they're like people in training, that is not correct, right? And so when you kind of have this dynamic of, you be quiet because I know what's going on and you do it my way, that, that um, creates people who then go out into the um, career world, don't know how to advocate for themselves, don't know how to gently bring something into a conversation, don't know how to take feedback without taking it personally. It creates all of these ripples. Yes, and then perpetuates because then they become the next group of people that does the same thing to the next group of young people. So it's, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's perpetuating. Yeah, it's true. So we need to nip this one in the bud. Definitely, absolutely. What did we miss? What do you want to, what do you want to go back over? I think the only thing I was going to mention, and you reminded me in that when you were talking about conflict, but I think we'll probably save it for another podcast, which is um, talking about how part of self-regulation is also um, in the sense of, you know, school discipline practices, mm -hmm. um, having a, a restorative uh, approach as opposed to a punitive or reward and punishment based approach where, um, Part of the part of the self-regulation is is or recognizing that self-regulation can be underneath this, and recognizing that there's often a function to behavior, even if someone isn't conscious of it. Yeah. So when you address, you know, misbehavior or behavior you don't want people to be doing, um, is uh, is different than just saying, you know, you're suspended, and when you come back, I'm sure that all of your regulation needs will be met. Uh, I, I'm not changing anything, but I'm sure everything will be better because we sent you home for three days, um, you know, highly unlikely. And we wonder why there's such a high recidivism rate in schools where they use punitive approaches. And it's because you haven't done anything. <laughs> um, all, all you've done is scared somebody and it might have a temporary effect uh, or they would be really careful not to be caught or they stop doing other things that they should be doing because they're afraid of you as opposed to helping someone do meet the expectations that you, you'd like them to meet in a way that supports them as opposed to just, you know, smacking them. Yeah, so actually that's something we should talk about in a future um, podcast because I can see here, like if we're unearthing, say some of the um, stressors in the emotional domain or um, pro, the, the pro-social domain, um, those can be big things to, to reveal, you know, for a child to reveal or for an adult to help a child reveal. And so those might be beyond what um, a classroom environment can adapt to or what a teacher can accommodate. So yeah, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, um, you know, teachers might need to lean on their colleagues for guidance around how, okay, now we found this out about Jordan. Now, what do we do to support his learning? What do we do? And then you bring up maybe the last big point, which is the, the other thing about the structure is Again, if you've divided your, especially a high school, up into I'm the English teacher, I'm the math teacher, I'm the social studies teacher, I mm. see this person for you know 58 minutes. Um, when am I going to deal with? How, when am I going to talk to them about the, their underlying function of their behavior? I need to do you know the Louis Riel rebellion. Um, so it's yeah. like, well, yeah, but so why do you organize your school that way? That's stupid. Um, like it doesn't make any sense. So tell us what you really think, Jeff. <laughs> I know I should, but but I mean I know I shouldn't say that it's stupid, but it, it it's starting to become stupid as we realize, as yeah. teachers especially, you cannot possibly do the things you need to do to do all of these, uh, you know, scientifically proven, you know, interventions and methods that are going to make learning better for your learners and make your job better as a teacher, and then people are trying to stuff these things into this um, this structure that does not allow them to fit. Yeah. And then, you know, then you feel really tired and dejected and like you're not doing your job as well as you could be in all of these things. And I see it all the time, especially on social media, quite a good community of teachers, especially on Twitter, you know, who are just absolutely 
run down and dejected, yeah. not because of, of anything they're doing. It's because it's impossible for them, you know, as the literature 12 teacher to help somebody with self-regulation. You just don't have time, ability, space, you know, it's, yeah. So anyway, we need to change that larger structure to, so that it's not just about, you know, teachers do better. Cause I, I think teachers hear that enough. Wow. Okay. There's a big note to, to finish on. So for anybody listening, for everybody listening, watching, um, the, the steps to changing that structure, that's the whole point of school of thought podcast. So in the episodes, you know, zip back and forward through the episodes and check them out and um, go to the school's website, www.learningstorm.org, because Jeff and his team have got um, a lot of the tools there. And it's, you know, it's, it's trial and error, but Jeff's and, and some of your contemporaries have really broken a lot of ground for how we need to shape education to more properly support learners. So um, this is a good start. Jeff, thank you as always. It's wonderful to chat. Definitely. Thank you, Alex. That was good. That was a good conversation. That was a good conversation. I'll see you next time. See you next time.